It's inspired scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David, we, we read in the book of Acts. So we know that the Psalms are just like all other scripture. They're inspired by God. But they were literally songs or became the hymn book for Israel. And I know that those of you who are musically oriented or find that the Lord gives you songs in the night, as the book of Job says, have had that experience. I had that experience when I first became a Christian. I was a drummer, so not much of, not much of a poet, to say the least. Uh, drummers usually get made fun of. But anyway, uh, I went through a stretch of time from the time that I got saved in my early 20s where I kept getting poems, and I was not into poetry, but I kept writing these poems, and, and these poems were about really about salvation, about my experience with the Lord, and I just put, you know, it was pen to paper. I had a little notebook of them, and uh, it's somewhere today, and then every now and then I will get lyrics of a song, and I pass them on to Shane, and I don't, I don't know if he'll ever do anything with any of them, but I can't do anything with it because I'm not a singer, nor am I a musician, at least in the strictest sense. But David was one who played the harp, or he played a stringed instrument. And some of you may remember that it was actually David that was the one who played before King Saul when he was demonized, and it was only the playing of David's harp or guitar that calmed Saul down. And if you think about episodes in David's life, he had the square off with Goliath. He was very young at that time. And then other episodes that David had was when Saul who was really his father-in-law, became crazed and was really trying to destroy David because he was fearful that David would take his place and David was going to take his place. And then another tragic episode in David's life was the rebellion of his son Absalom. And so when you see David write a emotional, hurtful, um, just raw kind of psalm, it may well fall into those few categories, maybe when Saul was after him, uh, perhaps, you know, it, it's recollections on the, the square off with Goliath or the enemies of God, because David was a warrior. Or it could have been the painful rebellion of a son who wanted to supplant his father by really taking him out. And if you think about, you know, pains that you may have, relational pain is one of the deepest pains that we suffer especially when it's relational pain with someone close to us. And so if you think about Saul and him trying to destroy David, and David would not take him out. Remember, David had opportunities and he wouldn't kill Saul. He wouldn't touch God's anointed. And then Absalom, your own son, trying to destroy you, kill you, and take your throne. That's, that's pain. And so a lot of David's uh, writings are written within the rawness of that pain, and that's why they're so honest. That's why they're so transparent. That's why they can be both brutal, like honest, brutally honest, and then hopeful, uh, like a lot of our situations are, where we have stuff heavy on our hearts and we have to go to God in prayer and we ask the Lord to help us with a word, uh, you know, from the scriptures. And then we kind of circle back and we find our hope again. That's, that's really what you'll find in a lot of these psalms. And this particular psalm actually falls right in the uh, area of the psalms of lament. Um, so let me just tell you that a, a lament is, we have a book of lamentations, and when you're lamenting something, it means you're, you're hurt over it. It troubles you. So the psalms of lament 
around Psalm 11 are Psalm 9, Psalm 10, and Psalm 12. And so you could be lamenting something, but simultaneously, please hear what I'm about to say, you could be trusting God while lamenting something. And that's an interesting combination of thoughts, isn't it? Because I could be very troubled about something and yet still be trusting God and still have a deep level of peace. And I hope that that's what you're discovering in these times. Uh, that's what I'm finding, that I could still have joy even though there's a lot of upheaval and a lot of things up in the air. And, you know, th this has been called a psalm of trust because that's when I really need to trust God is, you know, when things are way outside my control. So let's pray. Father, thank you for each precious person that's come out tonight. Thank you for our youth group, our kids, uh, those who are, have joined us via live stream, those who are here. Thank you for the wonderful prayer meeting before the service began. Thank you that you, are, you honor prayer. You tell us to pray at all times and not lose heart. Uh, there's a lot going on, Lord, but we know you have not moved. You are on your throne. And whatever you want us to hear tonight, Lord, let us be good soil for the seed of your word. Let it produce fruit unto your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's read through the psalm. It's only seven verses. Psalm 11, verse 1 says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord, Psalm 11, 1, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is, verse 4, in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. New King James says he'll rain coals. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now if you'd like to put headings, uh, put at the top, if you're taking notes, a psalm of trust in the midst of opposition. And the first plank, I'm going to give you three main points. The first one is trusting God in the midst of adversity, personal or corporate adversity, trusting God in the midst of it. Psalm 11, verse 1 starts, In the Lord I take refuge. Now that, to me, looks like a decision that you have to make in your life. You have to decide to take refuge in the Lord in the midst of adversity. And that is not an automatic even if you're a child of God, because there are many places of refuge that you could go to. I'll put refuge in quotes, because there are a lot of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, who have places that they go to, things that they go to, even substances, even pornography, you name it, as a refuge or a haven to escape the reality of the difficulty that they're facing. The biblical encouragement to us the biblical admonition for us is to go to the lord in those times it's to run to jesus it's to turn to the author and perfecter of our faith it's to go to the one that hebrews 2 18 and hebrews 4 uh, around 14 through 16 or 13 through 16 says is our mediator our great high priest the one who is able to help in time of need amen so this is how you take refuge as a New Testament Christian. You go to Jesus. You go to a throne of 
grace to find help in time of need. That's literally what Hebrews 4 talks about. That he is available to steady you in the storm. In the Lord I take refuge. One of the beautiful biblical pictures of taking refuge is a little chick uh, hiding under its mother's wings. That's the idea of refuge. It's a, it could have been a cave that David, uh, you know, he hid in. There's a, a place in Israel called En Gedi. And it's uh, known as the, the strongholds of En Gedi. And it's a place where David hid from Saul. You can see it today if you get a chance to go to Israel. Some of you have been there. There's actually a, a natural spring that feeds some waterfalls, but this place is in the Judean wilderness. So it's, a, it's kind of a shocking place to, to experience because all around it is desert. And you could be where they the, discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the area of, called Qumran, and you can look off into the distance, I don't know how far away it is, and see En Gedi. And it's desert all around, but there's this one little spot where it's green, where there's ibex, there's animals there. And the only reason they're there is because there's flowing water there. There's running water. And that is a place of refuge in the storm. God, one, one of the images in Hebrew thought for God is that he's like water. Jesus described salvation as living waters. When Peter preached in the book of Acts, he says that times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord. And when you go to the Lord for refuge, what you come out with is refreshment. I'm always refreshed in his presence. Amen? So when I go to him for refuge, when I don't bite my fingernails or run over here and do this or that or go to some of my old haunts or my old places where I find temporary relief but usually add additional problems to my life. Anybody uh, resonate with that one? There are people who, they have things that they go to, but those things just cause more problems in their life. So instead of adding another problem to your life, learn to make the Lord your refuge. And you'll come out with refreshment instead of another burden. Amen? And we get, we get caught in this cycle sometimes where even as, after becoming a Christian, that's a hard habit to develop. It's not just an automatic that, oh, I, I'm stressed out, so I'll go to prayer. Or I'm stressed out, so I'll, I'll put on worship music. Or I'll, I'm stressed out, so I'll go to a Bible study or call a buddy of mine who's strong in the Lord. No, that's not an automatic. In fact, if I were to ask you to give me a percentage of Christians who you think do that well, what do you think the number would look like? <laughs> I mean, here I am a pastor, and I have to tell you, you know, it's a struggle. It could be a struggle to, to go there, although the Lord bids us to come boldly to the throne of grace. In the Lord, I, make it personal, verse 1, take refuge. Is that what I do? Is that what you do? When my heart is in anguish, when I am struggling with difficulty, is that what I do? Do I take refuge in Him? I want to show you just a couple parallel passages all the way to Psalm 31. We'll just stick to the Psalms just for a second. Let me just show you some parallel passages just for your encouragement. Psalm 31.1 says, In thee, O Lord, 31.1, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness deliver me. Incline thine ear, 31.2, rescue me quickly. Now, when you go to the Lord, this is a, kind of an example of how you might pray. Be thou to me a rock of strength. Lord, give me strength. Rescue me quickly. Look at the middle of two. Uh, uh, let, I don't want to be ashamed. Deliver me, verse 1. Rescue me. 
Be my rock, a stronghold to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy namesake thou will lead me and guide me. Some confidence in the prayer. Thou will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For thou art my strength. Into thy hand, this is something that Jesus actually prayed from the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Turn over to Psalm 46. We've studied Psalm 46 in a previous Wednesday night study, but let me just show you an example. Uh, this is a very encouraging psalm, but Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. He's what? He's a very present help in trouble. The word help literally could be translated, he is accessible in trouble. And so whatever drives me to God can be a good thing. If I have trouble and it drives me to God, that's not a bad thing, that's actually a good thing. Just uh, write this one down. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Go to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Psalm 62, 5 through 8 says, My soul... Wait in silence for God only, 62.5, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Sometimes you got to do a little self-talk when you go to the place of refuge. Oh, my, oh God, my salvation, seven. My glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then there's that pause we've talked about in the song. It's selah. It's pause, ponder, meditate. What did he just say? Pour out your heart before God. Don't be afraid to give him your anxiety and cares. And then just a few more. Psalm 73. Psalm 73, 26. Psalm 73, 26, making the point, you need to decide to make the Lord your refuge. It's not automatic. It says in 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. Let me give you a practical as you turn over to Psalm 91. Let's just say that you and your spouse are going through something. You're both Christians, but maybe you don't pray together very much. And all of a sudden, there's, there's a tough situation. There's a bill that you can't pay. There's a, a medical examination coming up that's making you nervous. Wouldn't it be good if we as husbands would say to our wives, Honey, I'm just going to pray over you right now. Now, I'm hoping that we're doing that. And I, I think as Christians, we all could say, I, We could do more of that. It doesn't have to be something extreme. But wouldn't it be good if we could lead, gentlemen, lead our families to the refuge and say, Let's pray about it. And we don't, we don't always feel comfortable so some of us feel much more comfortable in a private prayer than a prayer even with our spouse. But this is how you run to refuge, not just for yourself, but for others. 
And then in Psalm 91, verse 2, it says, Psalm 91, verse 2, we also studied this psalm, and it's a beautiful, but just for tonight, it says, I will say to the Lord, Psalm 91, 2, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I will say it. Let the redeemed of the Lord, huh? Is anybody out there? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You gotta, you gotta say it. You are my God. You are my trust. You are my Lord. Say it to him and say it to yourself. Because I do believe that the Psalms reveal that there is such a thing as healthy self-talk. Back to Psalm 11. Now, the psalmist started off with a positive. In the Lord I take refuge. And I told you that's a decision you have to make in the moment. And we got to learn to do that better and better and better. And then notice the second part of verse 1. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, I honestly don't know who was saying that. I think if you read commentaries on this psalm, some will say an enemy of David was saying to it to him. And to me, it might be something like this. Are you going through trouble and adversity? Where's your God? Where's he at now, Christian? And sometimes what happens is that people who are non-believers will mock believers in their time of trial. They'll kick them when they're down. And we've seen some of that in our media, frankly, when there's been, you know, tragedies in the culture and difficulty, and someone might say, hey, let's pray, or People need to get back to their Bibles. That gets mocked by some of the talking heads in our world. And I think it's sad and tragic that they do that. But it also could be a family member. It could be somebody that you've been trying to win to the Lord. And all of a sudden you're going through, you know, you're, you've, been, you've been beat up and you're chewed up by life. And they look at you and say, well, where's your God in all this? Why don't you just get the wings of a bird and fly up to the top of a mountain, man? And I'll tell you, in these days, probably one of the great temptations that we all have as Christians is if I only had wings, I think I would fly and perch myself on the top of a mountain somewhere. Anybody? <laughs> Can I get a witness? I mean, we start watching news reports. We start looking around. We start, you know, just seeing what people are going through, etc., etc. I don't have to tell you. You know, the illustrations these days with preaching are very easy. I don't have to find any illustrations right now. <laughs> All I have to say is, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, yeah. If I only had wings, I, I would fly and perch myself above all this mess. If I only had wings on the 91 freeway. It doesn't matter what time you're on the 91 freeway. You wish your car had wings. But it may be in verse 1, and this we do see in other places in the Psalms that this is, and, and I don't know this for sure, but I just throw this out for you to consider that maybe it's an internal battle for David. How can you say to my soul? Uh, flip over to Psalm 42 just to kind of back up this point just for a second. Psalm 42, uh, this is a question that is written by the psalmist in Psalm 42, and he says, Why 42, 5? 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. And then he goes on. So back to Psalm 11. I don't know if that's the case here because I will tell you that in the lament psalms uh, around Psalm 11, you'll see that it's the enemies of the people of God that are mocking them. Take a peek just at Psalm 10. Look at verse uh, 8. Psalm 10, verse 8, it says, Oh, I, I want to go back, but I got to stick to my notes. So here we go. It says, he sits in lurking places of the villages. This is the wicked man or the enemy. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up thy hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, Thou will not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou hast beheld mischief and vexation. To take it into thy hand, the unfortunate commits himself to thee. Thou hast been the helper of the orphan. Now, one of the main things that you get out of those verses is that there's a person that lurks and looks for a believer, I'll put that in quotes, a, a person who looks to God and is falling under the pressure of life and that person, that wicked person, wants to unravel them or uh, destroy them. And I can't help but think of some of the worship leaders and uh, those who were leading some rock Christian rock bands who have fallen away and said they're unbelievers, I will tell you that there's probably a couple of primary reasons for that. One is they had a crisis of faith and maybe didn't get what they needed in that moment. Um, and, and that certainly does happen. Or it could be that they, they saw some sort of tragedy, call it uh, you know evil and suffering, the problem of evil, and began to hear some voices say, you see, you know, there is no God. In Psalm 14, just a few pages away, it, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then we, we find out why they say that in Psalm 14. And that the reason that they say that is because they want to live like they want to live with, they don't want to be under the dictates of God and his word. And so the temptation is to flee. Maybe you felt that way even in this time. Maybe... Maybe you've been considering fleeing, whatever that means. Now, there's a good kind of fleeing, like if you flee from sin, but the other kind of fleeing is fleeing from fear. And that's what fear will cause you to do, is to run away, to flee. Think of that uh, time in David's life when he was willing to take on Goliath, but everybody else was fearful. And the enemy will certainly tempt us to flee. And it could be to flee from Christian commitment. It could be to flee from covenant uh, with your spouse. It could be to flee from a lot of different things. For behold, Psalm 11, 2, the wicked bend the bow. A little bit more about the pressure now. They make ready their arrow upon the string 
It's kind of bending back the bow now to shoot. To shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. Here's the problem. The wicked have set their sights on the righteous. And here, David digs down a little farther into the problem. He feels like he is a target. <laughs> and you guys know that like a couple of those scenes uh, when David is sitting at Saul's dinner table and Saul gets up right after a bite of potato and throws a spear at him. <laughs> it's a little, little unnerving, right? You know, you're hoping that you can look down at least during a part of dinner and whew, spears are coming by <laughs> your, your head by the king. Uh, that's pretty unnerving. And we know that the were to take up our shield of faith with which we can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the wicked one. And there are times that, you know, we haven't taken up our shield of faith. Faith is another word for trust. This is a psalm of trust. And we haven't raised up the shield of faith and we've gotten hit. And those arrows hurt. And sometimes we say, man, there's stuff under my skin right now. Thing, people have gotten under my skin. I feel you. And sometimes we pull an arrow out and we say, this belongs to you. Please take this. And you're like, no, it's yours, baby. <laughs> Look, life can hurt. And even though we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, sometimes the arrows that fly at us sure seem like they're coming from flesh and blood. And then he asked a question. If you could translate this, when the foundations are destroyed, Psalm 11:3, what can the righteous do? Now, I don't have to tell you that fleeing to the top of a mountain and wishing you had wings and saying something like verse 3 is probably, if you haven't articulated it, you have probably had it rolling around in your soul. What can I do about this? What can somebody like me do? And if you've said that, let me tell you, there's a lot that you can do. See, if the church would stand together and be the body and be united, there is a ton we can do. Amen? We saw it evidence this last Sunday when the churches that received the cease and desist orders were packed. And Christians came out in droves to say, you know what? We're going to stand with these leaders. We're going to stand with these pastors. We're going to stand together. Because a house divided is going to what? It's going to fall. Jesus said you could be assured. A house divided will not stand. But a house united... Let's take the positive. We'll stand. Amen? Amen? Now, I know Jesus gave us the, the negative of it, and he was talking about Satan is not going to be divided against himself, but he prayed that we would be united so that we would stand. Here's an opportunity to stand. Amen? And to stand together. I'll tell you, tonight we had the prayer meeting before we started. It was so beautiful to hear the prayers of God's people. I'm so encouraged by the prayers of God's people. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a question. And sometimes we feel like we can't do anything. In verse 3, uh, some would, would say, this is another taunt from the wicked to the righteous. Your foundations are gone. 
There's nothing you can do. You might as well sprout up those wings and go to the top of a mountain. Just get out of here. Because you, you can't do anything. And that's a scary thought. And I certainly have been looking around these days and going, oh Lord, what, what should we do? The word foundations there is a Hebrew word. Let me give it to you for those of you who are in- interested. It's Shatha, S-H-A-T-H-A-H, Shatha. The word foundations is a support or a stay. We build upon foundations, right? It's a basis, but it has a nuance in the word of moral laws or political laws. Isn't that interesting? It's the foundation of a culture. It has implications that it's not just like a a building metaphor. We see those all throughout the Bible. But here it has to do with the moral foundations of a society. And I know that we have been looking at our own country and we see bills being passed at, you know, the speed of light, sometimes in the dark of night. All of a sudden we're like, well, when did that pass? And when did that get voted on? And and what? And the moral foundations feel like they are shaking, don't they? And, and it, it feels like, what do we do? What can the righteous do at times like this? Well, if you do nothing, then you, you will do nothing. But you can pray, and you have spiritual armor, and you have a voice, and you live in a country where you have a vote. And do you know the number of evangelicals that stay home every time there's an election? It is a tragedy. How many evangelicals stay home every time there's an election? It's more that stay home than vote. I'll just put it that way to you. So we can curse the darkness and say, oh, it's just so terrible. Or we can say, no, I'm going to do something in my generation. And I'm going to ask the Lord to help me to know how to do that well and to do that with compassion and, you know, winsomeness and all of that stuff. Let me just remind you that the guy who wrote this was the king of God's nation when it was at its height. You know, under David and Solomon, Israel really saw its heyday. But what happened to Israel? Were the foundations destroyed? Yes. In fact, the nation became so morally corrupt that God had to judge it on multiple occasions by foreign armies. And that's why there are some that believe that, you know, in God's sovereignty, he's allowed this to rock the United States, and for that matter, the world. Because if we really pulled back the veil right now, and I started going into statistics about what we do in this country, and I could just bring up some areas like redefining marriage, sex trafficking, abortion, and we don't believe that the chickens are going to come home to roost, I I just don't think we have a biblical understanding of God. Now, God is a God of grace. And there are many people crying out to the Lord and getting right with God. And it always starts with the church. If the moral foundations of, if the, if, let's just put it this way. Um, Somebody once said that politics is simply ethics applied. Politics 
is ethics applied. Somebody's ethics are going to be applied in a culture, right? Now, politics don't answer the deepest needs of the heart, right? But they play a part in a culture. And it was lived out in Israel where the foundations were destroyed, where the people of God did not obey the law of God, where they didn't obey the first and second commandments, where they had high places and idols and acted out with those idols into morality and divorced their wives without cause. And you go down the list and you know what happened and you see the result of it even today. And so we say, well, Lord, please, don't let that happen here. Don't let that happen now. If the foundations are destroyed, the word destroyed there is broken, uh, to break up, to pull down, to overthrow. And I put in my notes, this begs a question. What are your foundations? Do you know that in the last several decades, that's all been undone now? People don't even know what the word foundation means. Do words even have definitions anymore? Whatever it means to you is fine. Unless I don't like it. <laughs> then it's not fine. Then it's not politically correct. And so here, here we are, in many ways, at a crossroads for the church in a country that we have come to appreciate and love with all of its foibles and shortcomings. But I'm going to make this personal. What are your foundations? If I were to ask a, a young couple that comes into my office for premarital counseling a question, one of my first questions is this. What are you going to build your marriage on? And sometimes I get looks back at me like, they don't know what I'm talking about or like I'm from a different planet. What are you going to build on? What could, be, could you be more specific, Pastor Michael? What, is, what are you talking about? I'm asking the question, what is your life really about? Where are you going? What do you believe and why do you believe it? Why do you make any decision that you make? Why would you be faithful to your spouse? Why would you go to church? It, is it just a cultural thing or a, a thing that your family's always done? Or is it truly Jesus Christ is my foundation? Uh, Nate, would you do me a favor? Check the air. It feels stuffy. Could just be me. I don't know. Anybody else? Hot. Come on. All right, now the psalm's going to shift. A little bit of bummer, bad news, tough stuff. What's the answer to it? Well, let's look at verse 4. The Lord, <laughs> he hasn't gone anywhere. Well, where's your God? And the foundations are going to, they're crumbling. It's crumbling, man. Uh -uh. Verse 4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And by the way, he's watching. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God is dead, said Nietzsche. The t-shirt says, God is dead. On the back, 
Nietzsche is dead, God. God presides over every so-called smart philosopher's funeral. Every one of them. Who was the guy that, um, was it, I'm trying to remember his name, but they started printing Bibles in his old house, the guy that, and he was a skeptic against God. I can't think of his name right now, but it was Voltaire. There you go. And Voltaire said, what, Christianity would be wiped off the face of the earth in a matter of so many years, and his house became a place to print Bibles. God has a sense of humor. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple with glory. In the year that a good king died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah might say, I was rocked. I wondered if the foundations were going to give way. And then I had a vision. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And the angels didn't stop singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord, he's in his temple. He hasn't moved. I know things are shaky down here. He's on his throne. It's in heaven. And he knows. The Lord, verse 5, tests the righteous and the wicked. Now, second time we've seen the word testing. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The Hebrew word here speaks primarily of rejection. He rejects the wicked man. Would you note in verse 5 that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked? All right, let's start with the wicked. Why would he test the wicked? It just further exposes their hearts. Why does he test the righteous? By the way, that's you as a Christian. Why does he test this? Further exposes our hearts. But testing, Genesis 22 says, God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son whom you love. I'll show you the mountain. Offer him as a burnt offering. And he obeyed. And Abraham, in the test up on Mount Moriah, got a view of God and the gospel up there through the test. And sometimes I get a closer look at the gospel in my tests. A closer look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A closer look at the provision of God when I don't know where it's going to come from and the ram is going up the other side of the mountain when I'm walking up this side and I don't know how God is going to provide. And it says, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I can't always see it. The Lord tests me, and he's got his provision, the ram, if you will, coming up the other side. I can't see it, but here I am trying to live by faith. I don't get it. I'm going to try to obey you, God. And God's got the provision there, and I get a closer look at the gospel. Amen? And the testing of our faith, James 1 and Romans 5 says, produces endurance and proven character, and proven character produces hope. So when you go through a test, it's because God's trying to make you stronger. Amen? Tests stretch you, but the purpose is to make you more dependent on God. Get a closer look at the gospel. Verse 6, upon the wicked, we're winding down, God will rain snares or coals, New King James. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Let me just say to you, that I think this is here in part to remind the righteous when you're being mocked and ridiculed and 
People are going, la, 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 the foundation, where's your God? Get some wings, you know, that you could say, well, I know what's going to happen to you. (laughs) Now, we have to be careful because God is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. So we got to be careful. But we do know that one of the places that God rained fire and brimstone was a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll read it for you. I think you know it. Genesis 19, 24, 25 says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And I got to take you to one more. It's all the way in Luke 17. This is Jesus picking up this image and talking about a comparison of the time of Lot and Sodom and his second coming. So take a peek. Luke 17, 29. Luke 17, 29. He talks about the days of Noah and then he transitions to the days of Lot. We'll go back to 28. So Luke 17, 28. And it was the same, Jesus speaking, as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone. By by the way, Jesus believes that Sodom and Gomorrah was a literal account. And if Jesus believes it, so do I. And it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 30. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is in the housetop, uh, on the housetop and is, whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. Likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. And then these fateful words, remember Lot's wife. All right, let's go back to Psalm 11 and we'll finish it. So I give you three things um, uh, it said three major planks. Trusting God in adversity was the first one. I want to give you the second one if I can find it. Uh, trusting God who reigns above the wicked. You could put that underneath verse four. Trusting God who reigns above the wicked. And then the final is trusting the Lord because of who he is. Because of who he is. See, we have to see the full picture, and when we do, we, we won't flee. Fear will flee. The man, says G. Campbell Morgan, who sees Jehovah enthroned and governing, has no panic. The third plank, maybe just above verse 7, if you're taking notes, trusting the Lord because of who he is. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, the upright I put in my notes, not the uptight. (laughs) I even put a smiley face in my notes. Hoping that a few of you would chuckle. The upright, not the uptight, will, what will they do? They will behold his face. I have two scriptures uh, to take you to and we're done. The first is Hebrews 12. So let's flip over there. So we have hope. We know we're going to see God's face. We know where we're going. We know how the story concludes. We're going to see the Lord. Uh, Life, this life is temporary no matter what happens, right? 
but we want to enjoy it. We want to have abundant life. We want to count our blessings, fight for what is good, fight the good fight of faith. So Hebrews 12, <clears throat> and take a look at verse 18. For you, and he's speaking now to believers who have trusted in Christ, Hebrews 12, 18, have not come to a mountain that may be touched and do a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. This is a picture of Sinai. To the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Hebrews 12, 21. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, by contrast, believer, instead of coming to Sinai, the mountain of law, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it, in light of all this, brethren, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now... He is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, 27, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What are you building on? And then Revelation 22, the very last chapter of your Bible, and this idea that we will see God's face is reiterated in the very last chapter that likely was written in the, the uh, canon. And here's what it says, and this is so beautiful. I just want you to... Meditate on it. Let it encourage you. He showed me, Revelation 22, 1, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, Revelation 22, 2, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they, sh they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Father, even though things look shaky around us and we, we can say, well, when the foundations are shaken, what can the righteous do? And we answer that question by saying a lot. <laughs> we can take refuge in you. We can put on the full armor. We can pray. We can preach we can believe in the power of the transforming word of God. We have a voice in our culture. And this is a unique time for the church to rise. And even in the midst of adversity and even mocking, Lord, we can look to heaven, have a fresh vision that our God hasn't gone anywhere. The foundations of the temple are secure in heaven. Nothing is going to ever touch it or change it. Only your will, Lord, will be done. And then, Lord, as we move down in the psalm, we have seen that we can have hope as we look to God for who he is. He's righteous. He loves righteousness. And in that day, when we see your face, you will make all that has been wrong right. You will reverse the curse. You will make everything new in the regeneration. And we will look upon the one whom we have loved without seeing. Even though we haven't seen you, Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us. Take a moment, just let the word sink down in your soul. Take a little Selah time, just meditate, ponder on God's word. Let it minister to you, let it build you up. Maybe let it move away some of the stuff that has weighed you down. With your head and heart bowed, if you're watching right now, you're here physically in the sanctuary or perhaps watching outside, and you've not met Jesus or you need to rededicate your life, this would be a great time to recommit your life or repent of your sin for the first time and say, Jesus, save me. Thank you for coming down from heaven to earth to live the perfect life that we can never live, to reveal God to us, to be God with us, to die on that terrible cross for us, to rise from the dead as you said you would, to defeat death, to promise that those who believe in you will live because you will live because I live also. Father, thank you for so loving us that you gave your son. I just pray that each one who needs to open their heart for the first time will do so. They don't have to have a perfect prayer. That prodigals will come home tonight. That your church will arise, O oh, men and women of God. And that you'll help us, Lord, to have wisdom and strength in this season. And I pray over our nation. I pray that you would bring us back to you. I pray for our leaders, church leaders, political leaders, Lord God, oh. Help us to come back to you. Forgive us of our sins, our individual, our church sins, our national sins. Merciful God, let your living waters wash over your people. Bring us into your kingdom. We love you and we thank you for tonight together. In Jesus' name.